0: Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk MedTech, the premier podcast for the medical device and diagnostic industry. My name is Omar Ford, and I'm the host of this episode of Let's Talk MedTech. I'm also editor-in-chief of MDDI, an online publication owned by Informa that is dedicated to the medtech professional. Well, Biomed Device Boston is almost upon us. And on this episode of Let's Talk MedTech, we're going to be speaking with keynote speaker, Gregory Fisher, the founder and CEO of AIM Medical Robotics. Gregory is going to be delivering his keynote from concept to commercialization. It's not brain surgery, or is it? On Wednesday, September 20th, from 1 to 2 p.m. on center stage at Biomed Device Boston at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. We're going to delve into a little bit of that keynote uh, during this conversation. We're also going to be talking about some of the cool things that AIM Medical Robotics has been up to. And special shout out to Informa Selena Morosky for putting this all together. So without further ado, Let's Talk MedTech with
1: Gregory Fisher.
0: Gregory, hello and welcome to Let's Talk MedTech. Thanks for being on the program.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: You know, I want to jump all in and discuss Biomed Device Boston. But first, let's talk a little bit about AIM Medical Robotics. And let's set the tone a bit for this, right? So you founded the company, and uh, I I just want to talk a bit about how that came to be.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, AIM Medical Robotics is really uh – you know, really the culmination of a ton of very exciting work over the last 15 plus years. Uh, prior to taking the role as CEO of AIM Medical Robotics, I've been a professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute uh, just outside of Boston. And the focus of my research group has been interventional MRI coupled with robotics so that we can do, in engineering terms, closed-loop medicine, right? The whole idea is as you're doing an intervention, we want to be able to watch the medical images. We want to watch the anatomical targets, which may move uh, during a procedure. We want to watch the instruments as they're going in and make sure that we actually hit those targets. And then if you're delivering a therapy or taking a tissue sample, that you did so in exactly the way that you anticipated. So over the last 15 years, we've actually had several uh, large NIH uh, R01 grants totaling a total of about $15 million uh, with various different collaborators, uh, some in the Boston area and some outside of it, uh, really to develop this technology, And then uh, AIM Medical Robotics was founded in 2018 and we've exclusively licensed all the technology that we developed under these research grants into the company. Uh, And now what we're trying to do is bring to market these MRI compatible surgical robots. And the primary application that we're targeting right now is on neurosurgery because it's a really exciting area where there's a tremendous need to make sure you get super, super high precision And unfortunately, a lot of the systems that are out there today, uh, you have really nice uh, preoperative MRI. You do all of your planning on this preoperative MRI. You do your targeting based off of the cranium. Uh, Unfortunately, what can happen is tissue inside of the brain, uh, just like any other soft tissue inside your body, can shift and move due to a number of different factors. If that happens, you really don't have a way interactively to typically know what happened there. So the idea is that we want to be able to put a robotic device, and when we're talking a robot device, very compact systems, Mm -hmm. inside of the MRI scanner, use that real-time imaging to see those changes during the procedure and then update that plan as we go along.
0: Well, what about the size of the technology? Just curious. um, Can you give some more color to, to it and kind of describe how it works?
1: Absolutely. When you think of surgical robotics, or when most people think of surgical robotics, they think of really large-rated systems doing minimal uh, laparoscopic-type surgery, right? So you think of something like a DaVinci or yeah. one of the other systems, it's really along those lines. We're not looking for uh, teleoperated systems that have a huge uh, surgeon-side console and a huge patient-side console. We're also not looking at essentially cart-like robots, industrial robot arm and then some custom instrumentation on the end of it, we from the ground up have developed a very compact application-specific robot. And specifically, it's effectively an actuated version of a stereotactic frame. Uh, You know, pretty much since the beginning of neurosurgery, there's been metal frames that get bolted on, head and you dial in these different coordinates. And effectively, this is uh, what the large majority of procedures are still done using today when they do stereotactic neurosurgery, despite all of the robotics that are already starting to uh, penetrate the market. So what we're trying to do is maintain that workflow that surgeons are very, very comfortable with, but use an actuated version of this stereotactic frame. So instead of going in your navigation software or planning software, identifying these desired coordinates and then taking a screwdriver and manually adjusting this big metal frame, and you know, leaving open uh, the problems for human error and all sorts of other issues. Um, we want to streamline that process of going directly from the surgical navigation software to automatically aligning the robot. That also allows the robot to the way and move back again uh, very consistently and repeatedly, which is important since there are steps during the procedure, such as, for example, uh, draping or drilling burr holes or putting clips in, where you really want the uh, Maximum access, but then you might need to have your trajectory guide come back again. So the robot looks a lot like a traditional stereotactic frame, um, but it's made out of engineering grade plastics designed in a way to be uh, very, very rigid Um, and it's actuated, meaning that we can move this guide around uh, autonomously to the location or the alignment uh, that you want to have. And on top of that, we designed it out of materials and sensors and actuators that allow it to go inside of the MRI scanner. So we can use a robot in the traditional operating room setting where it effectively acts like a, a robotic stereotactic um, frame. But once we go inside the MRI scanner, we actually can iteratively take uh, live images from the patient using the MRI to determine the target anatomy moves. So we can register the robot to the patient, and then we can take this frame, which again, is just a small arc-like frame that goes over the patient's head, align it to the trajectory you want. We can drill the burr hole where you think it needs to go. Then we can take another image, and if there's been shift due to, for example, cerebral spinal fluid loss, or swelling, or air getting in the brain, or just the patient being in a different uh, orientation, We can then take another image and update that trajectory before you actually deliver, let's say it's a deep brain stimulation lead or a biopsy needle or a precision. um, Or uh, we're also looking into cancer applications where we have needle based uh, ablation to burn brain tumors. And again, all of these, you want to make sure you hit the right soft tissue anatomical targets uh, within the brain, not necessarily coordinate relative to the skull. And then the other real big advantage of this is when you start going into multiple targets. So for example, deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's um, is typically bilateral, which means you insert two different electrodes. Uh, so we really want to streamline this workflow in such a way that we can very effectively hit multiple insertions. And then also in iterative imaging allows us more accurate on the second and further uh, insertions because we can take image updates because just like any other part of your body, You know, the brain's going to swell and things are going to move. And if you don't take that into account, you can have reduced accuracy. So, again, it's really this compact, looks like the little arc frame that goes over the patient's head. Nothing like, you know, these large, uh, you know, gantry or cart-like robots. And it can fit right inside the bore of the MRI scanner so we can integrate real-time imaging. So
0: it doesn't take up that much real estate. There's not that much uh, maintenance when you compare it to um, other surgical robotic systems like uh, DaVinci.
1: Exactly. And the whole yeah. idea is that we can just set it up and very quickly put it into a scanner room. So we had a previous generation version of this robot under some of the uh, grant funding that I mentioned previously. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually ran a 30-patient clinical trial at the uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. And in that scenario, we had the robot essentially from being you know in a case buried in a closet, do in the scan in the MRI scanner room on the bed, ready for the patient in you know under 30 minutes, uh, which is really pretty uh, tremendous considering some of the other systems that are out there it can take you know one to two hours to set up and require um, an entourage of engineers or at least a technician to uh, fly out and set this up. Really, this idea of having a very streamlined workflow of a very compact device that's very easy to set up in clinical staff, and then the other really important distinguishing feature is that. We're not built into a room so by not being a very large system or requiring custom you know penetration panels into the mri room for example or requiring dedicated real estate in the operating room or the mri room we can set this up in any mri suite a diagnostic sweep or a dedicated interventional suite or an operating room and essentially just wheel it in set it up and take it out again there's nothing that's uh requires customization of any of the rooms
0: Now, I want to change focus for a bit, and I want to talk about Biomed Device Boston. You're keynoting this, and and I'm going to tell you I was intrigued by the title of the keynote, uh, From Concept to Commercialization. It's not brain surgery, or is it? Break this down for me. uh, Talk a little bit about the title, and and can you tease the the keynote just a bit? We don't want to give too much away, but can you just tease it a bit?
1: yeah of course so you know one of the things that i thought i'd have a little bit of fun here with this is that you know there's tremendous amount of guidance on there on how to do medical devices and you can look at tons of books and flow charts and courses of you know how can you go from a concept to a commercialization um but it's all very generic to generic it's not specific to a particular domain or a particular device and you know one of the things that we've really noticed as we go along is you know, you need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the user, of the clinician, yeah. right? You almost need to be, in this case, a neurosurgeon, a brain surgeon, right? I've watched, you know, so many of these procedures, and I need to understand what are they thinking at each step along the way. It's not about just coming up with this cool idea and how do I, you know, get it through, you know, appropriate design controls and through it through the FDA. The the real hard part about this is, you need to actually. Effectively be a brain surgeon, or at least think like one, and really, really understand what are these problems and what are these challenges, and and you know solve those actual issues. And if you want to be successful, so that's what I was trying to get out of this idea that you know it's not about just you know going from how do you go through the steps of the chain to get through you know the regulatory process and get it commercialized. It's how do you actually do that in a way to solve real world problems.
0: Interesting, interesting. Uh- you know, we talk about the uh, the patient journey, right, being a focus uh, um, of your work. And in this industry, I sometimes feel as if the patient isn't fully taken into consideration. Sometimes, um, can you discuss the patient, the importance of the patient journey, and, and talk about the pitfalls of omitting it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I need to look at the the big picture, and that's yeah. one of the things that's. Very important, right? So if you look at a particular procedure, there might be a number you can do it. Um, but you know you need to think like what did it take them to get ready? What's the procedure like itself, and then what happens afterwards? So, if you're gonna do a procedure and maybe you can do this procedure minimally and invasively, uh, but it has a, you know, Rate of either, you know, recurrence where you have to go back and do a reoperation or a certain rate of procedures where the target just was not hit right and you need to go back and do a revision operation for example, you know, that's hugely impactful on the patient. So one of the goals that we have is, you know, we want to make sure we do these procedures right the first time, you know, every time there. And you know, that sounds obvious, but there's a lot of cases where that's not necessarily true. And to me this idea of using real-time interventional imaging is kind of the holy grail because you can guarantee you actually do what you think you're doing during a procedure, as opposed to using what I would almost call stale images of you know pre-operative MRI, and then you might have intraoperative CT or ultrasound, but that's really not the same. And even if you try to do these you know fusion techniques, you know that's still synthetic synthetic images that aren't necessarily representative. So we want to do things that make sure you do this procedure. Right, so you can avoid this chance of, for example, having to do a revision operation because your deep brain stimulation leads for Parkinson's didn't go in exactly the right spot and you're not getting the effectiveness you want or maybe side effects. If it's a brain cancer application, you know, we want to make sure you get the best possible margins, uh, you know, that match the tumor shape as well as possible because if you don't, uh, one, they're going to have to go back for another procedure or the tumor really just is handled effectively, or two, if you take an over-conservative approach, you're going to have tremendous side effects, especially when it comes to uh, brain cancer. It's not like, you know, in breast cancer or liver, where you can just take a little bit larger margin in most cases, and that's safe, right? When you're doing uh, brain cancer therapy, suddenly you could affect somebody's memory or their speech or their ability to walk, so you need to really be super, super precise, So that's one side of it, is just making sure we do these procedures right. So, you know, it's a huge step for them to go and do these surgeries. The last thing you want them to do is have to, you know, go through that again, you know, after we've gone through all of this. Um, The other side of it is we want to make this surgery itself as atraumatic as possible for the patient. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these uh, cases are actually done, um, you know, and since they really don't have a great way to guarantee that you're in exactly the right spot. They will do, what I'll use for lack of a better word, uh, surgeons might not agree with this, is essentially various different hacks to make sure you're in the right spot. So they will, for example, use micro electrode recordings to listen to the electrical activity to sure that you're in the right spot, for example. Um, that means the patient needs to be awake, typically. Uh, often the anesthesiologist will actually wake up the patient and ask them to have some sort of interaction to make sure that they're doing it correctly, or they might hook up the electrodes for Parkinson's case and actually try to see, did the tremor get reduced? You know, that's a way to make sure that it's actually working the way you think it should be working before you leave that procedure. But the real reason that you need that is because you didn't have a way to look at the images and guarantee that you were at the right spot. So by using robot, for example, coupled with uh, real-time MRI imaging, we can do these procedures while the patient is asleep, the entire procedure, the procedure time can be cut probably about in half is our estimate. Uh, so it's going to be a faster procedure, a less dramatic procedure, less time under anesthesia. And more importantly, they don't need to be awake during this procedure. They essentially will wake up and their leads are, are already placed and they are need to be in the right spot. We looked at the images and within the you know pixel resolution of the MRI scanner, which was used for the original planning in the first place, we can guarantee you're in the right spot. So I think that's really a tremendous part of this is that we can make the procedure less traumatic in the first place and then also reduce the chances that they're going to have to go back again and again for um, repeat procedures. And even when we were dealing with the uh, prostate robot in a lot of our research settings earlier on, which used the same platform technology, right, all this technology related to putting robots inside the MRI scanner, I'd say, you know, 80% of that is Consistent between different devices. The controller is the same. The sensors, the architecture, the wiring. It's just what the end effector, essentially, or the manipulator looks like. Um, in there, rather than taking having somebody go and get ultrasound biopsies, where they take you know between ten to twenty biopsies in a you know almost random fashion, right? If we go in, and we can pick the one, two, three lesions that look suspicious in MRI, and take biopsies from those specific spots. And what that means is suddenly you can do fewer uh, needle sticks. So that's a big advantage to anybody, but almost more importantly, you have much higher sensitivity. So you can get away with less needle insertions and still have a higher percentage chance of actually finding it if something is wrong, because you know you don't want to find out that you have cancer, but if you have it, you better find that sooner than later because you're yeah. going to have a better chance of having having good outcomes. So again, I, I think that's a kind of a common thread of, you know let's do these procedures and get the best um, you know, precision that we can to make sure that we don't have to go back and do that again and do it in as less traumatic a way as possible. You know, I, I think that's very
0: interesting overall that you there's so much consideration for the patient and the patient's state of mind. So, you know, it's not traumatic for them. And it, you know, that's that's refreshing coming from a startup because I know some some companies they just fall in love with the technology. And it, it you know, it's not it's not because they're not trying to help anyone. That's quite the opposite. But they just become so married to how well the technology will work that they don't look at the patient's well-being overall. You know, of course, they care about safety and efficacy, you know, in, in all the regulations. But just to take that kind of care, that personal touch for a patient, I, I think that says a lot.
1: No, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. And yeah, I think it's super, super critical. And again, this also gets back to finding what the real problems and the real mm-hmm. challenges are. And I talked before about the challenges for the surgeon, but there's also challenges related to just the whole logistics of the procedure itself, yeah. to the hospital, to the patient. And these are all really, really important things to really understand and consider. And, and also why I'd really highly encourage anybody to, you know, get the opportunity to really Watch these procedures, but not just the procedure. Really understand that entire process of, you know, how did the diagnosis happen? What happens in between? How did they prep for the surgery? What's actually happening during the procedure, um, and afterwards? Because sometimes it's very easy to think about a quick procedure. You know, a, a good example would be, um, you know, I had a family member that needed a pretty, you know, simple surgical procedure. They said, "Oh, this is a quick, you know, five to ten minute procedure. I do these all the time." except the recovery from that procedure was, you know, a couple months, right? So oh, wow. it's one of those things that sure, the, uh, it's a pretty straightforward procedure. It pretty much goes well every single time, but, you know, you might not be able to you know, walk on that foot, for example, for a couple of months after that. And that's not necessarily thought about the same way. So it's really important to just really understand all these different parts of the, uh, the flow, if you will. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, I'm gonna bring up this is, this is a personal story, and I, and we see this in diagnostics all the time. I remember I had to have a physical um a few a few years back, and my white blood cell count was um was low. Um, they didn't have an accurate count for me yet. They hadn't established a baseline, and mine was a little bit lower than than normal. I just come off of being like really, really sick. And I remember going through a ton of tests some were for cancer some were for HIV but but what got me was just waiting for the answer right just that time period where I had to wait you know and it took maybe um a few days and I'm like living in agony I'm um, saying oh my gosh what do I have do I have cancer do I have this it turned out it was it was nothing that was just my um established um they just had to establish my white blood cell count but it's it's physicians, and it's also just med tech companies and diagnostic companies really building in the education to to create these products and these devices um, in the wherewithal to 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 really make it comforting for the patient. You know, uh, you know, quick results are, are good, but also just making the patient feel as comfortable as possible and educating them about this these procedures that. Might take a little bit of time, but it'll take you a lot of time to recover, you know, just giving that information. So uh, I know I went off on a tangent there, but that just kind of uh, that that hit home with me for a bit because it's it's always this this end result and waiting. And it, it almost feels like sticker shock when you when you get treatment sometimes.
1: Oh, for sure. And uh, <laughs> no, I mean, that's really, really. Good point there. But I mean, I I would make sure that, you know, all the manufacturers and the clinicians when they're working with patients, you know, it's setting the expectations is is important, right? I mean, I think everybody really needs to know what it is that they're getting into. Uh, And then there's obviously the other side of this of trying to to get us the feedback that we can as quickly as we can which again i think when we start using interventional imaging and and more broadly than that there's lots of different means of interventional imaging and also even taking you know tissue samples and doing analysis on the fly i think a lot of these intraoperative means of getting really meaningful feedback are going to be super transformational because you know we get that information right when you need it as opposed to having sent something to a lab and have to wait for a while to find out you know did you get the right you know margins because as it stands right now a lot of times they'll you know cut out a tumor for example they'll resect it they'll send it to the lab and then they'll actually try to figure out you know did you actually get the margins that you wanted to have and that comes back in a lab report you know if there was a way to on the fly whether it's using medical imaging or using other types of uh, really cool sensors that are out there now interoperatively to try to identify, you know, where those boundaries are, you know, you'll kinda of get that level of confidence much, much faster. In fact, by the time you leave the operating room, you should be confident that everything went the way you wanted it to go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well let's talk now. Let's switch focus again and let's talk a little bit about um Let's talk a little bit about the field of robotics and robotics. Surgical robotics has, has grown tremendously in the last few years, and we're starting to think of of surgical robotics more than just intuitive surgicals, da Vinci, right? You know, that used to be the iPhone of, um, of uh, yeah. surgical robotics, but there's so many different disciplines now. I'm wondering, where do you see the field going in the next few years, and what are some predictions that you have for the space?
1: Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, I used to think of robots, and a lot of people used to think of robots in really two different classifications. There were these teleoperated systems where you could almost think of them as fancy remote control cars or planes where, you know, you have a surgeon console that you move around and then there's some dexterous manipulators inside of the body. And then there were other devices that were more on the image guided side of things, where you take images, and they're almost point and click type surgery devices. Where you pick a trajectory, you align the target, and then the robot automatically does some sort of just a alignment, typically, of a straight, rigid instrument. right? And then, you know, there are a few other classes, but I would generally think of these image guides and then these telecoms. What we're starting to see is really this merging of these different types of devices, more and imaging and more and more feedback and more and more intelligence is actually being used in these procedures. So, so moving forward, I would anticipate, you know, even a lot of these dexterous manipulation platforms, it's not going to be just purely, you know, leader follower type motions. It's really going to start adding intelligence. In fact, even um, in the research setting, uh, you know, during my uh, faculty appointment, we did work with uh, a research version, of the da Vinci surgical robot, where we're trying to, automate or semi-automate tasks so you can take the biggest advantage of having four arms on the patient side and only two user inputs on the surgeon side. So things like automating retraction. If you're doing suturing, automating one of the hands so that it could hand something back to the other hand that's being teleoperated. Or, for example, uh, automating control of an endoscope so that it learns what the optimal viewpoint is for a certain task of a procedure um, and then lining that up. So I think adding this level of intelligence and then coupling that with unique imaging techniques, whether it's, you know, overlays on uh, endoscop- endoscopic videos or incorporating ultrasound or incorporating uh, intraoperative like MRI, for example. You know, I think the ability to use real-time feedback, and I know we have a lot of engineers that are in the audience. Again, I like to use the close, the term closed-loop medicine, right? Close, closing the loop with feedback. And to me, that's one of the ways to see things going. The other direction that I think is going to be really important moving forward is you know these smaller more compact application specific devices you know there certainly is and will continue to be a need for you know very large robots that have generic applicability to a lot of different indications but i foresee a lot of smaller lower cost application specific devices for various different uh, anatomies and uh, clinical needs Um, And, you know, you might get to the point that some of these you may not even necessarily think of them as robots, right? These might be just small automated devices that have some intelligence in them that are helping with a certain aspect of a procedure. And I think there's just going to be more and more growth of these. And quite frankly, I think it's going to be somewhat of a natural progression. And again, some of these you might not as, you know, a robot. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: it's, it will be interesting to see where we go, you know, five to 10 years from now. There are definitely a lot more companies, um, a lot more um, startups and a lot more uh, med tech firms playing in the space. We've seen some of the larger strategics make acquisitions to, to be a part of um, the surgical robotics um, ecosphere. So it's it's really a, a hot market right now, a hot space that's teeming with activity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's an incredibly exciting to, field to be in, and I'm so uh, excited to have uh, stepped in, you know, with both feet to uh, lead A Medical Robotics because it's just so much going on right now, and I really see huge opportunity for for what we're doing, but also just more broadly, uh, you know, how we can come up with really new, cool robotic devices. And you know, I think one of the things to get across is, you know, it's not just about the AI and the image processing. That's a huge aspect of it as well. But there is so much opportunity for coming off with cool, new, very useful, clever manipulators, control systems, electronics. I mean, this is really uh, you know an all-hands-on-deck uh, effort, and I think there's a huge opportunity to be really unique new devices. Now, I have to go back to um, – because
0: I'm sure Adrian Zappetta would kill me if I didn't ask this question, but I have to kind of go back to the um, – uh, I have to go back to the the keynote for a second. And I, I just wanna ask if we can bring it back home and talk a little bit about that. Uh, out of all your experience, out of, of what the company is doing, uh, what are you hoping that attendees will, will get out of the keynote? And will they hear some of, some of what the company is doing, what AIM Medical Robotics is doing in the space?
1: Oh, for sure. Um, I'm very excited to, uh, you know, present what we're up to and where we're going and this really unique approach of taking robots and putting them inside the MRI scanner. And from an engineering perspective, I think actually folks will find it very interesting because, you know, robots are made of steel. They're usually actuated by motors. A motor is what? A steel can, a magnet, and a coil of wire. Those are probably the three worst things you could put. MRI scanner. So it's a really <laughs> exciting, interesting uh, engineering problem that I'm looking forward to uh, to talking about. Um, but uh, you know more broadly than that, um, I really think emphasizing, you know understanding what are the the needs, right? And getting back to what I mentioned earlier, putting yourself in the shoes of the surgeon and not just the surgeon, but also, the clinical staff, you know, the nurses that are going to be setting this up, for example, uh, also ending, again, the patient journey, as we've talked about. It's really, really important to understand, you know, all the players that are involved in, in the use, use of the device um, and really understand what the real challenges are. And we can run through some uh, case studies, if you will, uh, of what we've come across. But I'd say the general point there is, you know, really understand what the real problems are from the real users. Sounds good. Well, I look forward
0: to hearing the keynote and I'm sure it's going to be an amazing time in Boston.
1: Absolutely. I'm very excited. Thank you very much.
0: That's it for this episode of Let's Talk MedTech. Thanks again to our guest, Gregory Fisher, founder and CEO of AIM Medical Robotics. And be sure to check out his keynote, From concept to commercialization, it's not brain surgery or is it? At Biomed Device Boston, held Wednesday, September 20th from 1 to 2 p.m. on Center Stage at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. And for more content like the Let's Talk MedTech podcast, please go to our website, mddionline.com. That's mddionline.com. Go there for all of your medtech news. And please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Let's Talk MedTech on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast.